This podcast was recorded on Thursday, May 3rd at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Did you view it as the conservatives were upset with Elections Canada for maybe a number of past reasons, the in and out scandal, whatnot, and they were punishing you through the Unfair Elections uh, Act? At times, it felt a little bit like that. <laughs> There's nothing you can do when uh, people decide that uh, for whatever reason, uh, they don't uh, they don't trust you anymore. It's uh, it's a sad state of things. However, it should not happen, uh, but uh, it seems to have happened in that case. Marc Mérant, Canada's former chief electoral officer, talking about the Tories' Fair Elections Act. That's the controversial bill that caused an uproar back in 2014. Academics, journalists, opposition parties, and the chief electoral officer were united in their fight condemning the Conservatives for introducing a bill that they argued would limit the ability of many Canadians to cast a ballot. In a country like ours where we have people, young people at universities without that proof, seniors and residences that don't have addresses, you know, their home addresses anymore, First Nations who rely on the vouching system and so on, it's just a way of saying you people don't matter. If you read this bill, you will feel like you have left Canada and slipped into a parallel universe. This week, the Liberals made good on a campaign promise to scrap many of the changes the Tories had brought in. But the bill didn't charm all pundits. The technical election monitoring term for the amendments presented today is hot pile of garbage. With the next election campaign a year and a half away, there's a certain urgency to pass and implement this particular piece of legislation, which brings back vouching and voter ID cards as proof of address. Those changes need to be undone. We remain committed to that. It's not acceptable if even one Canadian is denied the right to vote. Is Bill 76, the Election Modernization Act, the legislation Election Canada has long fought for? I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. On today's show, we take a deep, very deep dive on the new election bill. My guest is Marc Mérant, Canada's former chief electoral officer, ungagged and eager to speak. We'll hear from party critics and check in with Gillian Frank, the Canadian leading the charge to expand expat voting rights. The changes we are proposing under the Elections Modernization Act will make the electoral process more accessible to all Canadians, will modernize the administration and enforcement of elections, and make the electoral process more secure and transparent, while protecting the integrity of the Canadian electoral system and better protecting the personal information and privacy of Canadians. Treasury Board President Scott Bryson wore his acting Democratic Institutions Minister hat this week in announcing the Liberals' electoral changes. NDP MP Nathan Cullen was quick to point out that the bill is coming to MPs late, more than two and a half years after the Grits were elected, and that it might be too late for a number of changes to take place before the 2019 election. Always a great idea to fast-track Russia bill through Parliament that has to deal with our fundamental democratic rights. My worry is they're making it up as they go along. 
we, they had enough in hand to introduce a bill 18 months ago and then did nothing with it. That we've actually looked for things to get at the, what do we do about fake news? What do we do about the proliferation of attacks on politicians that are unaccredited and maybe foreign sourced, as we saw within the U.S. elections in Russia? I don't know if that's going to be in this bill. We have no idea. So if the, if the government wanted to introduce this in stages over several bills, we could... We have had 18 months, and we had a deadline, which is now broken as of today. There's no way to fast-track this through properly and not make mistakes, which is also, a, I think, a legitimate concern. Not everyone agrees. I spoke with Green Party Elizabeth May, who thinks the bill will be law, whether or not the other parties support the changes. I'm really pleased to see it, number one. Much of what we see in C-76 undoes what we used to call the Unfair Elections Act. A lot of people will remember Stephen Harper had something he called the Fair Elections Act, and we were crying foul because it would make it harder for Canadians to vote, uh, restrict the powers of the chief electoral officer, um, deprive Canadians living overseas of the right to vote. There were numerous provisions that are reversed in C-76. And one new one that I really liked, because you may know that I introduced a private member's bill this week to reduce the voting age to 16. One of the things that goes partway there in Bill C-76, as a holdover from the former C-33, is uh, that Elections Canada will go into schools and various ways of engaging people from 16 to 18 so that they can register to vote from 16 to 18, even though their right to vote doesn't uh, doesn't become a right until they turn 18. But the hope is that by having pre-registration, knowing what to do, being all set, will encourage 18-year-olds to vote. May is also pleased the bill partly addresses something she personally finds revolting, political attack ads that flood the airwaves between elections. The Liberal government's new legislation will, for the first time, prevent parties from spending a lot of money on advertising just before the election. During what the government calls a pre-writ period from June 30th to whenever the federal election is called, parties will only be allowed to spend $1.5 million on advertisement. But that still allows the airwaves to be a wild west until June 30th. I don't think we should, well, the Green Party position is that we shouldn't allow television ads for any political party at all in writ or out of writ. And a lot of, a lot of countries do that. Uh, the argument here is that, you know, a, a negative attack ad has a really serious effect. I mean, this legislation would not have caught what Harper did to Stéphane Dion. What kind of leader is Stéphane Dion? And Stéphane the characterizations of Stéphane Dion from the very first moment of his being uh, elected, nominated by the Liberal Party to be their leader, this was in, I think the attack had started in January 2007, and they were a shock because no one had been used to seeing, you know, paid political advertisements who weren't in an election campaign. Stephane Dion, not a leader, not worth the risk. But to the extent that a leader who's just won the party's nomination and is now the leader of their party gets something that would be called a honeymoon period, I, I, I mean, Stephane Dion got a nightmare period because he was being characterized as not a leader, something of a buffoon, but this was character assassination. It had nothing to do with policy, but it was effective, and it sabotaged Stéphane Dion's ability to define himself to the Canadian public, and I don't know why we should allow that at all. Why do we allow paid political advertisements to invade our, our personal space, you know, pay, 
during, you know, watching a hockey game, you're having fun at home, and suddenly you've got this ominous voiceover that party X, whoever it is, is out to get your babies. Well, it, 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 they're, they're nefarious, these ads. They're intended to reduce voter turnout. They are a form of legal voter suppression. They shouldn't be allowed. The new limits also affect third-party groups. They will now be allowed to spend more money, 500000 during a campaign and $1 million just before the election is launched. That had the Conservatives' critic, Blake Richards, raising some questions. There's some changes there, uh, which I think are designed to look positive, but I think there's a giant loophole that's been left there, no question. And I think if, you're, if you have someone who wants to pump a, a whole lot of money into an election in Canada, uh, there is still a great ability to do that, whether they be a foreign person or, or, or someone here in Canada. Um, you know, the, this new pre-rip period that the government's created from sort of June 30th onwards, they're saying, okay, after that, we can't, we, we, you know, there's, there's some spending limits. Uh, but they've within the writ period itself, they've actually more than doubled the amount that uh, these third-party organizations can spend. And uh, if you if someone wanted to dump a whole lot of money on, say, June 29th, just before these rules come into effect, there's really nothing that can be done to kind of try and track that. Uh, so if say if, say an individual, because if you look at the period from June 30th onwards, those third parties can actually spend a million dollars. So let's say someone wanted to dump 15 million dollars into our uh, elections. 10 organizations on June 29th receive $1.5 million from the same person, and that same person has now the ability to get around all the spending limits that we have in place and the contribution limits that we have in place for political parties. You know, one might have to ask the question, uh, with the Liberal Party sort of fundraising numbers being so terrible, are they hoping that there's maybe a few people that might kick in a whole lot of money and uh, help advocate for them uh, in this way? Um, that's the question that I think some people are asking, and I don't think it's an unreasonable one. Blake Richards and I chatted about some of his other concerns related to Bill 76. The first one is on the voter information cards being used as a piece of ID uh, once again. I think that that, when you look at the last election, there was nearly one million of these things that were sent out uh, erroneously. That's uh, that's a pretty significant concern. And when you talk to Elections Canada, they'll tell you that at any given time, about 16% of the records on the National Register of Electors on which those things are based uh, are, are also erroneous. So that's a concern to me that uh, you'd have that being used as a way of identifying uh, your address when... You know, we see there's clearly a lot of errors there. I mean, and that's the whole point when we're addressing election law is to try to take away opportunities that it would be for all the rest of us to be concerned that our vote maybe is being not treated uh, in in the um, proper fashion when we have the ability for someone else to maybe potentially do something that could uh, could call that into question, right? And I think when you talk about a million of these being floating out there incorrect. What's to say that they aren't used in, in that kind of way? I mean, uh, we'd be naive to think that there isn't people out there that would want to try to do that. Um, and why would we leave a, a huge giant loophole that would make that possible? When I really believe that, you know, if you look at all the different forms and the ways that someone can can uh, can prove their, their address and their identity with the, the numbers of ID that are uh, possible to use, and I mean, obviously that can always be looked at and expanded upon, um, I really think that most most people, if not everyone, would be able to to find a way to, to to verify that address without having to use these these cards, which are information cards only, uh, and as we've said, have a lot of errors um, as as a way of of doing that. 
Uh, one thing that this bill is bringing back is vouching. In the last election, uh, the government under pressure, your government, um, had amended their initial Fair Elections Act to allow for an oath, uh, somebody to use somebody else if they both pledged that what the, the information they were given they were giving um, was uh, authentic and, and true. Is the return the return of vouching? Is that a, a bad thing? Well, I, I certainly preferred the, the the system that we had in place for the last election. No question about that. I would rather that uh, that we maintain that. I think that is more. Uh, I, I feel more comfortable with that. And again, it kind of speaks to that whole idea of like we all as Canadians want to know that our vote uh, isn't going to be. Uh, um, counteracted by someone who maybe voted that you know improperly whether it be in the wrong poll or the wrong uh, uh, electoral division for example or maybe someone who shouldn't have, shouldn't have been voting at all uh, and I think that this certainly makes that a little bit more possible uh, and so I would prefer that we would have maintained what we had at the time of the Fair Elections Act, a lot of the critics said, if you bring, rather, if you scrap vouching, you're going to depress voter turnout. We're going to have a lot of problems at the poll. People who legitimately can vote will not be able to vote. And in fact, what we saw in the last election in 2015 was that there was an increase in the voter turnout and there were fewer people who reported going to the polls and not being allowed to vote. So what does that tell you about the practices that were brought in under the Fair Elections Act and um, the government's uh, quote unquote corrective measures in this bill. Well, I, I mean, I, certainly to me, it speaks to the very fact that these alarm bells that were going up were 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 false alarm bells. I don't really think that it, uh, you know, uh, there was any um, merit to sort of some of those complaints that were being made. I, it shows that you know people, you know, obviously, as you say, the, the turnout went up, uh, and I'm I've not heard of any documented uh, proven case where someone said I couldn't vote because of the provisions that were in place in the last election. Um, so to me, that tells me that it worked just fine. And uh, why not continue with that? If there's, you know, if there isn't, if there isn't a problem, what, what are we trying to solve? Blake Richards is the Conservatives critic for Democratic Institutions. I know the commissioner got all the powers in the world now, almost, but I, I, you may find it's not enough to get uh, to, to deal with uh, what's going on in the social media platforms. Well, my name is Marc Meran, originally from Trois-Rivières in Quebec, but spent much of my time in Ottawa, and in the last 10 years, I uh, was the chief electoral officer for Canada until... December 2016. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. A lot of the recommendations or the suggestions in this bill, Bill 76, stem from recommendations that you had made to parliamentarians. So I was hoping you could tell us what is in this bill that you think um, are great things and that will make uh, the election process more democratic and fairer. Mm -hmm. I think there are important changes in the uh, in the bill introduced this week that uh, will improve uh, accessibility and inclusiveness, particularly for uh, disabled electors who have a challenge. The uh, new bill will allow for voting at home. It will allow for, uh, for example, candidates with disability will have a higher reimbursement uh, than others. Parties will be encouraged also to use alternative 
uh, tools to reach out to people with disabilities, and they will be reimbursed at a higher level for those efforts. We have what I believe it's two or three or five million Canadians with uh, various degree of disabilities, and we need to make, to make them feel part of democracy, both as voters and as candidates. Uh, there were a few other things, uh, which uh, I think we all witnessed in the last election. The campaign should be shorter. <laughs> I had proposed that it be uh, limited to uh, 45 or 50 days. Uh, the government picked 50, 50 days. I think that's, again, that's a move in the right direction. Just before the last election, uh, we spent, we, the media, we, the public, the NDP went on campaigns across the country um, and even yourself spoke out against the government's efforts um, to change some of the parts of the Elections Act and what they called the Fair Elections Act and what their critics dubbed the Unfair Elections Act. Um, the Liberals are suggesting that this bill really fixes the Fair Elections Act. Is this bill, Bill 76, the bill that you were hoping for, looking for? Oh, in many regards, yes. I think uh, up to 85 and even more of our recommendations are reflected in the bill, so we, we can complain about that. It will uh, allow, again, the use of the voter card as one piece of ID to establish your address. Um, it will uh, reintroduce vouching also, which in some remote community is uh, often the only way that people can uh, can be established as uh, electors. So uh, I think that's th these are, my mind, positive changes. Because these individuals don't have two pieces of identification with their address. Yes, correct. And uh, we'd be surprised how many people are affected by that. I'll give you the example uh, um, of seniors. Uh, Often they have, first of all, they have some uh, limitations, some disabilities, and often they don't have access to papers on, on their own. Those papers are held by the family members or whoever take charge of them. So when it comes to voting, it's uh, it's a challenge for them. To uh, I remember this, uh, there was a case before the court where the vote was found to be illegal, and mind you, it was before C-23, you know? but uh, because a nurse in a nursing home vouched for the resident of the nursing home. Since she was not registered at the same poll as the resident, the vouching was illegal. And the, the court ruled that those votes by those seniors, which were Canadians, which were voting in the place where they live, so we knew where they resided, uh, those votes were uh, voided. So I think the new bill uh, will address uh, those sorts of uh, unacceptable situations that happens here and there. The Conservatives, I spoke with the critic Blake Richards this morning, and he said that the Conservatives still have a lot of concerns about the use of voter ID cards as a proof of address. And he told me that in the last election, although I haven't been able to confirm this with Elections Canada, that there were a million voter cards that had errors on them. Yeah, last night it was 400,000. <laughs> uh, that's normal because people move around. So yes, sometimes we have to update the cards at the last minute. Uh, it's estimated that some 18% of the Canadian population move every year. So that's four or five million people. The other point I would make here is that uh, the, voter, uh, the, the voting card will not be used alone. It will still need to be combined with another pieces of ID. So I think that's another safeguard out there that to ensure that, again, we, we maintain the integrity of the voting process. 
So this idea that anybody could kind of swoop into the lobby of an apartment building, take all the voter ID cards and stuff the ballots is unrealistic. Over the time I was at Elections Canada, I heard a lot of those rumors. I must say, uh, didn't get uh, complaints formally. And secondly, when it was, uh, when those statements were made uh, in the House of Commons, uh, I remember by a senator at some point and by an MP, uh, we wrote to them to provide us the evidence or the statement of facts of what they observed, and they both backtracked. So the case of illegal voting, were mostly people suffering from various uh, incapacity, uh, mental capacity that forgot that they had voted at advance poll. That's what we see. And uh, most of the, these are isolated cases, and most of them are not intentional, quite, quite the opposite. During the discussion about the Fair Elections Act, the background for that bill was the robocall scandal. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of changes in the bill um, while they had nothing to do with robocalls, like getting rid of vouching and getting rid of the uh, voter identification cards. And initially in the first version of the bill, uh, political parties would get to appoint the the chief supervisor at the polls Mm -hmm. and they were giving Mm -hmm. political parties the right to not include voter contact uh, in their election expenses if people had donated more than $20 before. I mean, it was stacking the deck in a certain direction. But that being said, there was a, a big back down. And on the issues with regards to the robocalls, this idea that um, people had to, or the companies that were hired had to keep the scripts uh, for three years at the end, it was, but not the phone numbers. Uh, it almost seemed like you, the government was trying to signal that they were moving it in direction, but not doing, maybe going far enough to solve the problems. Do we see this bill helping solve cases like that? Yes, it like will that? require those uh, callers to uh, keep the phone numbers because that was one issue for the commissioner in uh, carrying investigation. First thing you have to know about these things is who was called. If you think of robocall, that was pretty difficult to figure out who exactly was called. You've got complaints, but you'd like to see the the master list of the the phone numbers that that was called. And uh, Bill C-23 did not address that issue. The new bill does, so that's, uh, I think again, that's an improvement. Uh, So the phone numbers that were called, not only the scripts, but also the phone numbers will have to uh, be retained now for a period of time, yeah. This bill, the context for this bill, seems to be um, the privacy concerns with regards to Facebook and also the idea of foreign influence in our elections. Does this bill go far enough to address these concerns and these quote-unquote threats that we might be facing? Uh, That's a a good question. Uh, It's it's new territory. Nobody around the world has yet figured out how you effectively, efficiently uh, manage foreign influence and foreign money. Uh, They all have some provisions, but nothing that can deal with what we've seen in the U.S. election and maybe uh, during the referendum in in the U.K. So uh, all governments are struggling to find a better way to deal with that. Uh, Bill C-76 introduced a number of measures that should facilitate Uh, tracking foreign money, tracking false and misleading documents, uh, fraudulent or misleading uh, uh, information, what our friends in the south of the border call fake news, should be able to track that 
and not only track it, but also there are offenses created to, to deal with it. Uh, again, it's a first step. I'm not sure how much further the government could have gone, given that this is new territory. I think we need to keep an open mind and be ready to continue to adjust as things evolve. Um, it does uh, seek to deal with uh, foreign money coming through uh, third parties. So it sets a number of rules to limit the spending of uh, third parties, more transparency for third parties, and limit of uh, foreign money uh, being used to finance uh, electoral activities. I didn't even know that foreign uh, individuals could donate $500. Something they're getting rid of, but yeah, I didn't yeah, even know yeah, that was yeah, in the bill. No, no, exactly. So again, that's uh, an old rule that was never uh, fixed. Now it's going to be fixed. Your but cousin again, Bernie it, from Colorado could send you a check for uh, your campaign. And again, you think about it. It's um, even that will be even without it. It's going to be tricky. I'm curious to see how this will all work out. Uh, because again, one thing I've learned in that job is that. Uh, and in other jobs is that money is like water. It always find a way through. So, and you have to be on your guard and uh, make sure that you know where the next loop hole will, uh, will appear and make sure that uh, it's blocked. On the issue of privacy, I must say that uh, I would have liked uh, much better. It's, uh, uh, I'm surprised giving all the discussion uh, around privacy that government and political institutions like political parties would not show the lead on issues of privacy. How can they pretend to impose all sorts of rules, Facebook, Googles, and all other social media when they, they're, they're declining to have them apply to, to themselves? There is, again, a very small step in the bill that seeks, uh, that will require parties to have a policy on how they protect uh, personal information. It certainly falls short in terms of enforcement. Uh, they will have to present that policy at the time of uh, registration. There's no monitoring of how the, the policy uh, is uh, is being applied, uh, what are the breaches, whether you as a as a citizen, can ask what information they, they, they hold on you and whether you can ask correction. So there's a number of universal principles around privacy you know, that are well known, well understood, and that I recommended both following the robocall, because robocall was a breach of privacy when you think of it. It's uh, somebody downloading a list from uh, the database of a, of a party. So that was a significant breach when you think of it. I had proposed that uh, should they fail to get a third-party certification that of the compliance with their policy, they would not be uh, allowed to get the uh, list of electors, which is gold for them. We've all heard about people signing petition and suddenly finding their way in database of political parties. I don't think those people signing a petition uh, necessarily meant consent to have their data collected by uh, political entities and being used by political entities. We had cases like that on the Hill, too, with some members who were sending uh, birthday cards and anniversary mm -hmm, cards, mm -hmm. but actually collecting people's even like passport information for other purposes. Yeah, there's all sorts of, uh, and that's why I think uh, it's, it's important to get uh, new rules in place, better rules than what is being proposed, and certainly a better compliance.
Let me ask you about election financing, because one of the things in this bill is by setting a fixed um, election period, a maximum of 50 days. They've also, for the first time, introduced this idea of a pre-writ period with election spending limits, um, giving political parties the right to spend, I believe it's $1.5 million in this pre-writ period that would begin at the end of June, June 30th, uh, up until whenever the election um starts, whether that's in mid-September or early September, (laughs) (laughs) but not August 2nd, like in 2015. Um, It also gives third parties a lot more, or the ability for third parties to spend a lot more than they have in the past in the writ period. And I guess now in the pre-writ period, just it's defined, um, though nothing prevents them from spending you know, $5 million on June 15th. Um, is this a, a step in the right direction? Are we opening the door to having more um, activist third-party groups? Again, that's a new phenomenon that I think, well, new uh, in its uh, scope. So. But uh, probably due to the fact that now with fixed date, it's much easier to plan. And I think everybody's taking advantage of that, political parties, entities, and uh, third parties, of course. Um, the, act, the, the, the new bill provides some restriction on that. Uh, it's interesting to compare the limit for political parties in the pre-election period, if I understood correctly, applies only to election advertising, which is specifically defined in the act. As for third parties, yes, their uh, amounts seem high, but it covers all their activities. Uh, One of the issues with third parties that they did not have to report on before was their other partisan activities or research activities or surveys and polling that they were doing. Now they will have to report on this, and it comes under the uh, the cap. Uh, they cannot spend more, and it's yes, it's a larger amount nationally, but uh, per riding, I think it's about ten thousand dollars. So it may not be actually be more money because activities like public opinion surveys, the door knockers they might send to identify potential voters, all that is included in the cost. But if they do it, it would come under the the cap. The the question for them and for anyone involved in election campaign was the best time to carry those activities. Is it in the middle of the summer during that pre-arid period or uh, before that? Um, that's for them to to decide what's best for them. But if they do it during the uh, pre-writ period, they will have to report on it. There's another change that uh, has barely been noticed, but also the ability now for Elections Canada to recruit staff under 18. With uh, with respect to the pre-registration of youth, that would make a difference because right now we're missing roughly 25% of the youth in the list of electors. So that means there's 25% of 18 to 24 years, I believe, that uh, are not registered. Now, with the ability to register them at uh, 16, uh, we can be proactive with it. Elections Canada could reach out to 16, 17 years old, and uh, we could run boots in schools where you could register them, use the opportunity to give a little bit of uh, education on democracy, their role as citizens. So I'm hopeful that this will be, again, this is the sort of very operational, very technical provision, 
but which make over the long term can make a difference uh, for uh, the engagement of uh, young Canadians. Well, one of the things uh, that has been sort of universally criticized is that this bill took so long to come before the House of Commons. The Liberals are entering their third year in government. They had introduced another bill that addressed a number of the changes or the recommendations that you had suggested, um, Bill C-33, um, but it languished in the House and they never brought it forward. They never sent it to committee. It's kind of there. Now they have a a, a super bill, if you wish, mm-hmm. um, with new things and the old things put together. The chief electoral officer, the acting chief electoral officer, because they still have not replaced you. Yes. <laughs> um, he's come to the House and said... Certainly not for lack of notice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you did give them a long time. <laughs> you told them you were going to be leaving uh, you, a year you gave them? Uh, seven months. Seven months. Mm. Yes. Well, uh, they're obviously searching high and low. Um, but the uh, the acting uh, chief electoral officer had originally told the House that it would be good if the bill would be passed by the end of April. So, of course, the government tabled it on April 30th. Does the timeline cause any technical issues for Elections Canada? Will it be hard for Elections Canada to oh, adjust to all these changes? It will certainly be difficult, even though... Um I suspect many of the provisions in the Act do not come as a surprise for Elections Canada. It's pretty much aligned with the recommendation we had put forward, so uh, no no real shocker there. But even that, uh, you, we're so dependent on technology now, and uh, the, uh, we had dozens and dozens of uh, IT system at Elections Canada that have all to... All to work in sync, so they have to be integrated. So you small, you make a small change in the piece at this end, well, it has to be reflected across all the platforms. So that's uh, very time-consuming, and uh, it's a risky business if you try to shortcut that at that time. The other issue and um, uh, is with regard to uh, training and uh, recruitment. Um, Changes have to be known well in advance so that the 250,000 workers that are required for an election are properly trained. To be properly trained, they need manuals. And those manuals cannot just be uh, developed on on a whim overnight. So um, there are issues there, and they will, I'm sure Elections Canada will prioritize and make, uh, and that's, it's their mandate, so they'll make everything that's uh, possible to make it happen. Uh, but it is urgent. This was a real treat. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Marc Mira is Canada's former chief electoral officer. One of the big changes in the Liberals' election bill is that it will enshrine voting rights for Canadians living abroad, no matter how long they've been outside the country. Right now, the law states only Canadians who've been absent for fewer than five consecutive years and who intend to come back to Canada as a resident may vote. The right of expat voters is currently before the Supreme Court. I called up Gil Frank, the Canadian living in the U.S. who spurred the legal battle, to talk about what this bill means to him. 
Hi, hi. What's going on? Tell me about this podcast that you're talking with me about. Okay, so let me start uh, the listener back to the very beginning of this case. You've basically been fighting for your right to cast a ballot for several years now. What has led us to this point? So in 2011, 2012, um, uh, when there was a federal election, I uh, tried to vote from abroad. And for the first time, I was not able to cast a ballot. Basically, what had happened was they changed the rules, saying that if you had been out of the country for more than five years, you could no longer vote. Previously, the five-year clock was reset each time you went back to Canada. And I went there very frequently. And so the five-year cap was never an issue for me. But now they made it an absolute ticking clock. And I found myself, alongside of over a million other Canadians, to be without the right to vote. And I was stunned by this. Um, I, I'm a history professor, and at the time I was teaching a course on the history of civil rights. And for me, the idea of not having one's right to vote was something that happened in the past. It was something that happened to people far less privileged than me and uh, with, um, you know, who had so much, um, I mean, how should I put this? I'll just say with far less privilege than me. And so I was just absolutely stunned. I thought, this must be some sort of mistake or administrative error or clerical error. And I dug into it and I found out that, you know, my MP knew nothing about it. The way in which the rule was changed was done in secrecy. And nobody could really counter it in time for that election. And so I was not able to cast a ballot in that election. And I, I got very frustrated and I said, well, um, this is deeply disturbing and upsetting, and I can't vote anywhere now. And I'm basically without official ties to my government. They can govern me. They can regulate my passport and my taxes and do all these things to me, but I have no official way of reaching them. And so I started to make a fuss and write letters and speak with politicians. And a lawyer named Sean O'Brien, who was at the law firm Cavaluzzo, approached me and said, are you interested in suing the government? And I said, yes, I, I am. I would like my right to vote back. But the whole time I kept thinking, oh, we'll just bring this to someone's attention and they'll see that it's an oversight. This isn't very Canadian to disenfranchise your citizens. And we ended up going to the Ontario Superior Court and the government said they were going to fight us on this. And they said that because we lived abroad, we were somehow lost our, had lost touch with Canada, that we were somehow not connected anymore, that we were somehow less deserving of the right to vote. And the judge actually sided in our favor, and for a short while, we regained our right to vote. And then I said, okay, this is going to be the end of the story. We want our right to vote back. We'll be able to vote again. And the, uh, this was under Stephen Harper's conservatives. said, no, we're going to fight this to the next level. And so um, in 2016, I went to the Court of Appeal and uh, in front of a three-judge panel, and we lost there uh, by a two-to-one vote. And the judges basically bought the government's argument, which was a bizarre one. It said not only were we disconnected, but basically the meaning of citizenship and the definition of citizenship is the government's ability to punish its citizens. And because we're abroad, we're less available for punishment and regulation, which is a deeply conservative view. So it's sort of fitting of the times that this was happening in. And so we, uh, the election came and went, and the Liberals took power with the promise of restoring our right to vote. The NDP also had that in their platform, as did the Green Party. So we went within just a few short years to being some sort of outlier issue where basically people will say, 
oh, why should expats have the right to vote, to most of the major parties agreeing that this was a key civil rights issue. Unfortunately, the liberals did not follow through with their initial legislation, and uh, they tried to stall our Supreme Court case. And so we ended up before the Supreme Court because they never re-enfranchised us. Um, despite them saying, oh, please delay the case for a year, we are going to re-enfranchise you. And so that's how we ended up in the Supreme Court. Now, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, despite the government sending its lawyers to argue against us and reiterate the same tired arguments about availability for punishment equals the right to vote and these other things, um, the liberals have now announced, to my great pleasure, that they are, in fact, going to re-enfranchise us. So I don't pretend to understand their logic or strategy, but I'm glad to know that one way or another I'll be able to vote in the next election. What does it mean to you uh, to be able to cast a ballot? It's such a, it's such a strange question to sort of have to articulate. I, I guess it means to me to be fully enfranchised, to be a dignified as a citizen, to have the right to exercise my citizenship to its fullest potential. Um, it's... I, it's so weird to be asked a, a question, of, as I have been many times over the years, so why do you want to vote anyways? And I'm like, are we so over-democracy that we devalue it so much? It's, it's like, oh, what's democracy anyway? It, it's, I think it's the lifeblood of a healthy, vibrant, democratic society, and voting makes politicians accountable to me because they can govern me. And I think that the basic premise is the state can reach me. And I should be able to reach the state. What would you say to critics, and some of them uh, have vocalized this in the Conservative Party, uh, for example, say, well, if you want to vote so badly, why don't you just move back here? That uh, people who uh, cast a ballot should have a strong connection with their local riding, and they should have uh, been living in the country, at least recently, if they're not living in the country now. It's it's such a nonsensical argument because the Canadian government over decades has shaped and encouraged policies that have allowed their citizens to move abroad through free trade agreements like NAFTA. They allow their companies to operate abroad. Canada's tried to create a global presence, and part of being in a globalized world means that Canadian citizens leave the territorial borders, and sometimes they do so for long stretches at a time. That's just the nature of the world we live in now, and Canada's done a lot to encourage this kind of mobility. And if they're going to encourage this kind of mobility, they can't abandon its citizens and say, you know, we're going to create these economic treaties that encourage you to go abroad, but we're going to cut ties to you democratically. The fact that the government is sending a strong signal that they approve of expat voting hopefully will encourage the justices to come down on our side. I hope that the justices decide this in our favor because no citizen's voting rights should be decided by changing governments. Um, we want this permanently enshrined in, in court precedents and legal precedents so that no future government on a whim can take our voting rights away again. Gil, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care, Althea. Gil Frank is a visiting fellow at Princeton University in New Jersey.
On Wednesday, caucus day, there was a sudden death in the parliamentary family. Longtime conservative MP Gord Brown suffered a heart attack in his Parliament Hill office. The Protective Service were the first to respond, but were unable to save him. Brown was 57 years old. He leaves behind his wife, Claude Zinn, his teenage son, Chance, and his six-year-old, Tristan. Inside Center Block, Tory MP Tony Clement spoke to reporters after learning of the death of his close friend. He was, ex- he was excellent. He was an excellent parliamentarian. He took his job seriously. Uh, he was passionate about it. He, he's done it for so long. Uh, you know, he's a veteran. And uh, we enjoyed, in the last couple of years, being veterans together. You know, we've been through the wars. And uh, we've shared victories and shared defeats. And it's just a good man. <laughs> sorry. Can't keep it together. I'm sorry. 251 parliamentarians in the House of Commons and the Senate have died while in office since Confederation. Heart attacks have been a common cause of death in recent years. Since 2014, three MPs have died that way, Brown, as well as Conservative MPs Jim Hillier and Jim Flaherty. Clement reminded the public this week that the stress, the lifestyle, the travel, all adds up. It's just another lesson about... This job, it's, I'm, I'm not trying to be morbid, but it's a death trap for people sometimes. And you don't, it takes years off your life. And I, I know we, we do it willingly, but sometimes the price is very high. Question period that day was cancelled. Inside the chamber, a bouquet of flowers and a conservative hockey jersey were draped over Brown's desk. He was the team's captain. MPs set aside partisan politics for the day and shared colorful anecdotes of their late colleague and friend. First and foremost, on behalf of the Liberal Party and Liberal members both current and past, I extend our deepest condolences to his wife, Claudine, and to his two sons, Chance and Tristan. I first got to know Gord as members of the Canada-U.S. Interparliamentary Group where we worked in common cause on Canada-U.S. issues for more than a decade. If memory serves, our first IPG meeting together was a New England Governor's Eastern Canadian Premier's Conference on Prince Edward Island, where Gord accepted my offer to show him around the island. As all of you know, while Gord was always willing to work with others across party lines, he was a true blue conservative through and through. And so for Gord to hop in my red truck (laughs) and and do a couple of tours with me around the island was, to say the least, interesting, but a lot of fun. He's a fine guy, a good person of good spirit, collegial, friendly. Yes, as my good friend from Mount Peck said, he was a true blue conservative, but he wasn't so partisan that we couldn't be friends. We know that Gord was an avid sports fan. In fact, I witnessed this firsthand when the NDP hockey team faced off against the Conservative team. In this one-sided affair, Gord contributed to that victory. As the NDP goalie, I am blaming it on ownership. In fact, our our team would soon be disbanded. So I say goodbye to my border brother, 
but you will never be forgotten. And again, I thank the family, friends, and the community for sharing us and making sure that Gord had the opportunity to make Canada a better place. God bless Gord. Last week we had a, an event that uh, we really wanted Gord to be at. And he turned down the initial invitation and so I asked my office to follow up and just make sure that he knew how important it was that, that he was there. And he called back and he said, listen, I can't go. I've made a commitment to the only person more important to me than this team. And that was Claudine. He, he had made arrangements to have a date night with his wife and he wasn't going to break that, Mr. Speaker, for, for anybody. And you know what? We were glad that he kept it. that's our show. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. And don't forget to subscribe. A big thank you this week to Yasmin Dawood, the Candor Research Chair in Democracy, Constitutionalism and Electoral Law at the University of Toronto. She helped me with some research. Melanie Wise at Elections Canada was incredibly helpful in answering all of my questions. And a big thank you, of course, to our incredible team. Zian Lum helps produce this show. Stephanie Warner stitches it all together. And Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. See you in two weeks. <laughs>